Mark chapter 16 and page 123 in your notebooks this morning. I do want to welcome you to this 25th annual Victory for Missions Conference. And I want to thank the preceding speakers who have done 20 hours of preparation for this session. As we hear, I believe, what God has been putting all this together for. I certainly am unworthy to stand here today before you but I believe there is one who is worthy of what we'll be saying here this morning. And so we claim his power here. Our great commission is go ye into all the world. And one of my special joys is going into all the world and discovering what God is doing and has been doing in our world. And I'm going to share some of that with you here uh, this morning, a bit of a missions travelogue. I just got back uh, with my, uh, traveling with my wife from India, and we were traveling through Calcutta, so I thought I would, um, well, what do you know? Okay, let's see, all right, I am going to need, well, okay, all right, my slides are not syncing properly. Um, I got back, I was going through Calcutta, so I wanted to see if I could find out uh, William Carey, uh, his work, because he was in Calcutta. And sure enough, the Carey Baptist Church is downtown the busy streets of Calcutta. And I went inside his, uh, the building there, and this is the very building in which William Carey ministered over 200 years ago. If you look down, you'll see a little discolored floor pattern there, and off on the far Uh, right, you'll see something on the wall there. It's so significant that I had to take a selfie in front of it. And uh, there in the floor is the in-ground baptistry of the William Carey Church. And here's what is on that plaque on the wall. It says, the Reverend Adoniram Judson was born in Malden, Massachusetts, August 1788, educated in Brown University and Andover Seminary, sailed for India under the auspices of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Mission, on the voyage, he and his wife, Anne Hasseltine, embraced Baptist views and were baptized in this church. 6th of September, 1812, by the Reverend William Ward of Serampore, this incident called into existence in 1814, the American Baptist Missionary Union with Dr. Judson as its first missionary. And I was standing where Adoniram Judson became a Baptist. That was amazing. And I... Pardon me, had to take a selfie. (laughs) I am millennial somehow. (laughs) The Cary Baptist Church, just as you're entering the doorway, has a couple plaques on it. And uh, if you'll notice the one here on the left, this chapel was opened for divine service January 1809. It was erected by the strenuous exertions and so forth of the missionaries Cary, Marshman, and Ward, the threesome. Architect. This tablet has been placed here in January 1909 to commemorate the fact that the word has been preached here uninterruptedly for 100 years. A missionary church preaching for 100 years the gospel. Then look at the plaque to the left, uh, right. 
Cary Baptist Church, founded January 1st, 1809 by William Cary, Joshua Marshman, William Ward. This tablet's been placed here in January 2009 as a testimony to God's providence and the faithfulness of people in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ from this place uninterruptedly for 200 years. And I had a moment to be able to go and sit down with the current, uh, pa uh, the pastor, and I asked who he was, and we were able to sit down. His name is Pastor Peter. He's an Al tribe Naga man who in the 1970s, his life was transformed by the Nagaland revival. And this man talked about revival like he'd been there. He talked about the holiness of God, the love of God, how he at first resisted it, but then he joined it. And the following 25 years of his life, he's traveled all over Hindu India preaching the gospel. And now he's the pastor of Cary Baptist Church. And truly, God's wonders continue. Right above the door of that church as you walk in is this statement. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. That's on William Carey's church in Calcutta, India. I think that's what we're talking about in these days and certainly in this session. On this trip, I was able to go up into northeast India up into the mountains, and it's really quite different from subcontinental India, the Hindu region. This is the tribal region. We were, you can see where Nagaland is, and Manipur is where we went, and we actually visited a Bible translation team led by Wangrai, uh, Wangraibu Ngonamai, and his wife, Michelle. And uh, they have a group of men who are translating the Bible into uh, the Leon Mai uh, uh, language, and uh, we were able to minister to them. My wife was able to minister to the ladies, and we had small group Bible studies, sometimes talking about spiritual strongholds, and God really met with us. There in that village is a church on the hill, and it's a Baptist church, and it was full on Sunday, and I had the privilege to preach the gospel, and we saw about a dozen people saved that morning, and the people were rejoicing in what God had done one very notable person stood and prayed out loud for salvation. Well, we had a, uh, an opportunity to go from there to kind of another mountain area. This was where my friend Somatai, who I met at South India Baptist Bible College, this is his home village. You're looking at it, the village of Mapum, and you can just see an absolutely incredible landscape. It's amazing. And it's the dry season right now, so it isn't raining 24-7, seven days a week for like three months straight. So this was a good time to be there. And if you will look up here on this gorgeous scene, um, you'll see that uh, right over here on another mountaintop, and you can't quite see it, is another village. And as we were going and taking this trip, it was a 12-hour trip um, on kind of four-wheel drive vehicle, and they were the main roads, but they were pretty much four-wheel drive roads as well. And uh, when we arrived at this village, they said, oh, we're not here yet. We're going to go on for a couple more hours. And to get to this village, you can't go down the mountain up. You have to go all around. It took about two more hours. Absolutely incredible views, straight down. But God was good, and we arrived in Rushia. Now, we arrived in Rushia on a Saturday morning, 
and they were having an annual festival. And uh, so we had met them the night before and you know, right, got up early in the morning and spent some time with the Lord and bathed in a, warm, a bucket of warm water and we're ready about 7.30 and they called us out and this is what happened. It is recording. Recording is started. It is started. I think these used to be headhunters. I was hoping it was true. There's no And my friend told me I wasn't quite into it enough. Sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is the way we are <laughs> of these. So we're walking into this village scene as honored guests at the head of a procession. I don't know what I'm leading. Of course, right in the center is the volleyball court. And they welcomed us warmly, gave us honored seats. And uh, we, I sat there and, um, oh, and shortly they began to um, sing a song. So there's the village, you can kind of see it pretty well. And as I sat there, I just felt incredibly privileged. They welcomed us so warmly. Just over a hundred years ago, these people were headhunters. And those couple young people there that were dressed a little less than the others, they were all naked about a hundred years ago. And it was quite amazing uh, to be there. And um, I was just praying for an opportunity. And I wasn't on the program. And at the end, they said, we're going to break the program and give our guests an opportunity. I was able to preach the gospel for about 10 minutes. And they loved it. Um, in fact, this man in front here, this is Somatai's older brother. He actually preached in the Sunday morning service the next day. I was not there. Um, if you'll look just up across the hill there. Well, let's see here. Here is uh, the people just warmly welcoming us, which is better than hunting our heads. Um, and here up on the hill is the church. It's called Rushia Baptist Church. A little, uh, maybe a little rundown, but beautiful in its own way. Established 1936. And as I went, and we left that place there, we went down to uh, uh, the village of Sui Xing, something like that. And we found another 
Baptist church, and a young man I'm standing next to, you can't see him well, he's still single. He was trained at Berean Baptist Bible College in Bangalore. And he is burdened for the spiritual condition of his people in his village, and it just had a revival campaign. Um, and this church was along the way. And then we get to back to Mapum, where is Somatai, and this is Somatai here on... Um, on the left, and his brother Pearson, and this is their church. And that established about 19, I think it was 56. And every one of these villages has a Baptist church in the center of it. And this is in Manipur. How did that happen? Well, I'll show you how it happened. It happened because of this man and his wife. Reverend William Pettigrew, was a, uh, a Scot Scottish man, trained in England, and was sent to in India as an Anglican. And guess what happened to him? He studied his Bible, realized infant baptism is, in, is wrong, and became baptized and was a Baptist missionary in Manipur. The same as Adoniram Judson. And this man, as he uh, landed there, God directed he, and then he married a wife after he had been on the field uh, for, a few year, uh, for a few years. And they went up to Manipur, and they were the first, according to a source I have, the first Christian missionary gospel proclaimer ever in Manipur. And they arrived underneath the American Baptist Church. Um, in fact, he was baptized in another one of William Carey's churches in Calcutta, the Lower Circular Baptist Church. And uh, at first, uh, he had no welcome uh, in a certain area, but God led him um, to this region of the uh, of Ukrul, of the Tonkul Naga people. Um, and his... Um, uh, his way had been prepared among the Tonkul so that several hundred years before they had had a story of one of their leaders had a vision that one day someone would arrive with somewhat of a unique appearance and he would have a mission regarding light or a message regarding light that we should hospitably welcome him and listen to. And so when, when William Pettigrew arrived, the man, the chief of modern day, of what is modern day Ukrul, welcomed him hospitably. He was the only one to do so, and it was very rare that someone would, but because of that vision in past generations, that man said, I need to hospitably welcome him, and he was, a, was received a person of peace. It's not sure whether that chief ever became a believer, but that was, in fact, William Pettigrew said, I couldn't go anywhere else but inside that district. To go to the mountains, to go to these villages where we were just looking, he couldn't go for 20 years. He said it was a big no. So he focused there, and uh, uh, within a couple years in 1901, he baptized his first 12 converts at this very place, and that founded what is today the very first, actually the first church in Manipur, the Fungyo Baptist Church, established in 1901. And he labored through that 
And uh, his first 70 converts, most of them fell away. But by 1923, and I, I want you to catch this, in 1921, a revival began. And the leaders were two national believers, Miksha Shimre, Thiessen Luikam, and the baptisms went to over 1,000 that year. The next year they, they had, in fact, they had another 1,000 among the Kuki people. Um, and the New Testament had, was translated. The gospel spread to every corner of Tonkul inhabited country from Kaput Huntsmen, that's headhunters, the Tonkuls became soul hunters. And today, according to this, in 2015, there are 250 Tonkal churches in around 235 small villages, 35,000 houses in the Baptist denomination constitutes 65% of Manipur, or of the, of the, of the Tonkal people. 20% Catholic, 5% Seventh-day Adventist. But that was what God did through one man who obeyed and he went. The church, here is a, uh, here in William Pettigrew's home, where it looks, it's this area of Fungio, and on his mantle that we walked in and saw, on one side is a Tonko man holding his head, a head. And the other is a Tonko holding the cross of Jesus Christ. And they went from headhunters to gospel proclaimers because of one man and his wife and their obedience. The word of God says, Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God and they went forth. Why must we go into all the world? We must go into all the world because the victory has been won for every creature in all the world. Every man, every woman, every child. When Jesus was received up into heaven, something happened that had never happened before. Jesus, the second Adam, took mankind to where he had never been before. You see, the whole created realm, man chief among it, had fallen under the authority of the supplanter, the deceiver, the murderous foe, and the one held responsible for this tragic state of affairs was God's spokesman on earth, the first Adam and all his seed. So God sent a second Adam. Created into this created realm, born of a woman, placed under all the responsibilities that the first Adam had so miserably and guiltily failed, and this second Adam fulfilled those obligations to perfection. The greatest of those perfections being living in perfect unity with Father God. But one ignominious day, all hell broke loose upon this second Adam as he exchanged his own perfections for all our imperfections. And the wrath of God was poured out upon him, and he tasted death for every man. Hell's gleeful shout was soon shattered with a triumphant cry, 
it's finished. And three days later, the second Adam rose victorious, rescuing mankind out of the condemnation of an endless death and raising mankind into the realm of Jesus' very own eternal life, shared freely with all who will believe. But the victory doesn't end there. The Son of God, now also Son of Man, ascended into heaven and approached the throne of God, not just the throne of the eternal realm, the throne of the created realm, and not just the throne of the created realm, the throne of the eternal realm. Not just the throne over earthly creatures, but the throne that reigns over the highest of angelic creatures, the throne that stands supreme over every name that could be named. And there, this Jesus, the God-man, sat down where he belonged and now also where man belongs with him. Restored to a dominion beyond what man could ever possibly even ask or think. And we will reign with him forever and ever. What so great salvation. And from that throne, there extends a triumph that is eternally secure and temporally secure. Because nothing in this life can separate us from that love. And from that throne extends a triumph that is destined for every place. Thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Who is sufficient for these things? The triumph of his presence is for every place. When we get a hold of that triumph, we will preach the gospel in every place. There's a heaven-side coronation. That heaven-side coronation resulted in an earth-side consociation. An earth-side consociation. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. So I want to just ask you this morning, can the Great Commission be completed in our generation? Can the Great Commission be completed in our generation? Well, one-third of our world is engaged and in contact with gospel truth. One-third of our world is engaged and in contact with gospel truth. It's been embraced. It exists where there are indigenous peoples like ourselves who have identified fully with the gospel and its mission. There's one-third of our world that is without, um, without gospel. One-third of our world is engaged and in contact with gospel truth, um, and it's present. One-third of the world is where the gospel is present and available 
And then there's one-third of our world that is without gospel witness. The gospel is not present. 90% of our missionaries, of our missions workers, go to this evangelized world. 90% of missions workers go to the evangelized nations. 9% go to regions that are already engaged with gospel truth. It certainly isn't wrong to go to those regions. But catch this, less than 1% go to the unreached regions where no gospel witness exists. There's one-third of our world that cannot hear the gospel today because no one's there to tell them. Well, I want you to know here this morning that we may not be going to these regions, but God is. God is at work today. God is working towards Great Commission completion in our day. God is working towards Great Commission completion in our day. Every day among Muslims, the Libyan Muslim imam, Sheikh Ahmad al-Khatani, the president of the Companions Lighthouse for the Science of Islamic Law in Libya, in a 2006 interview said this, Islam used to represent, as you previously mentioned, Africa's main religion, and there were 30 African languages that used to be written in Arabic script. When we realize the entire population of Africa is one billion, we see that the number of Muslims has diminished greatly from what it was in the beginning of the last century. As to how that happened, well, there are now 1.5 million churches whose congregations account for 46 million people in every hour. This is the Islamic sheikh speaking. In every hour, 667 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every day, 16,000 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every year, 6 million Muslims convert to Christianity. These numbers are very large indeed, and he's bemoaning the fact. That's what God's doing every day among Muslims. David Edens, who uh, we had the privilege of visiting here last fall, he's a 44-year veteran missionary to Niger with BIMI. He translated the Bible into the Tamajic language. He's worked there among Muslims in the Agadez region of the North Desert of Niger. He was a part of a team of five or six families that arrived in the 1970s. Since 1982, he and his wife were the only ones that remained. Over 25 years, the only American couple remaining. With the translation and distribution of the Tamajic New Testament, recording of audio Bible, and now weekly radio broadcast on the government stations that reach all of the Tamajic-speaking people of Niger, the gospel, the response to it is impossible to track. He was in the market of Agadez just recently, and people coming up to him asking about his wife's health. His wife's health is not good, and they were inquiring about it, and they said they were praying for her. He said, Muslims don't talk that way. He inquired a little bit more, and they said, every Saturday morning at your 8 a.m. radio broadcast, every radio in this market is tuned and listening to you. And he said, many of us are believers. In August this past summer, he visited the village of Cool Springs where a woman lives named Kate. She had begged uh, her husband to get her an audio copy of the scripture and he refused until he heard it for himself and thought it was pretty good. 
So he shared it with his wife. For several years, David had heard about this village, and when he arrived, the atmosphere was rather unusual because he was warmly welcomed and honored significantly, and he discovered that all 200 of the village inhabitants are believers. And they asked for 70 more audio MP3 radios so they could take the gospel to their neighbors further to the north. Michael Garmy is here in our audience here this morning. God's led him personally to impact uh, Muslims, especially of the Persian uh, people. And he's literally led hundreds and is discipling hundreds and impacting thousands. And the explosion of believers in Iran is one of the most significant gospel advances in our day. Perhaps the fastest growing church in the world, doubling every four years. You should read a couple of the books that are listed there. Radical, totalitarian Muslim domination is not compelling to the young generation. And they're tired of it. And when terrorists act out in our world, there's a whole host of Muslims who say, that's not me. What am I? And they begin searching. George Zaris of the Christian Radio International, a ministry that is only 15 years old. Every day, his broadcast in television and satellite covers 20 million Urdu speakers in Pakistan, 170 million in India, 535 million in Africa in languages of Arabic, English, French, and Swahili, 165 million in Arabic in the Middle East, and 110 million in Farsi in the Middle East for a potential viewer on television every day of 1 billion people. In radio and satellite, he has three radio stations in Iraq, um, Iran, and Kuwait, broadcasting also up into Iran. 22 million listeners potential there. The New Testament Baptist Radio Internet Station has a 700 million potential worldwide audience. Another satellite radio that covers Tajikistan has 110 million for, in that realm, 832 million potential listeners. He says, I have no idea what God is doing, but in India, we get 1,000 replies every week. And in Iraq, we get 1,000 contacts every month. God is working. You should read a couple of the books there. And uh, that uh, I would highly recommend listed for you. Do you know every day in China, Paul Hadaway, who is the accomplished missions researcher, um, who has authored a book called Operation China, he, the biography of the heavenly man, and a prolific researcher and writer, he has personally smuggled over 11 million Bibles into China um, since about 30 years ago when God called him as a young man. He estimates, and I asked him just on email, could you please tell me this? He estimates that there are 14,000 Chinese converting to Christianity every day. That's a conservative number because I've read numbers twice that. Um, that's 5 million every year. Every day in Asia, according to Paul Hadaway, he's working with, this is just one man's ministry, 1,300 Asian evangelists working among 1,000 different people groups. This past year, in his reports, they led a total of 77,397 people to Christ. That's 212 every day. Families and entire people groups have been transformed, not apart from some amazing persecution and difficulty. Every day in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa since 2005, one church multiplication mission has tracked the salvation 
of 480,000 new believers gathering in 18,000 small churches across 30 different countries, touching 424 different people groups, 114 movements of over 100 churches, 50 of whom are among Muslims. One visitor said, I felt like I was walking in the book of Acts. The fingerprints of the Holy Spirit are all over that. Every day in the Pacific, in May of 2016, a team of BIMI representatives traveled to Papua New Guinea at the invitation of national leaders. And they were begging them that they would help them reach the next generation and just grieving what's happening in their nation. They had learned that BIMI had provided Bibles to every student in all the schools in Fiji and they wanted it done in their country. The Speaker of the National Parliament actually commissioned the purchase of a first edition King James Bible and they put a first edition Bible in a, in a box in the center of their parliament. And instead of me reading to you what he said, why don't you listen to him in his own words. The Apostle Paul stated that a great door and effectual is opened unto me. Throughout its history, BIMI has prayed for open doors for the gospel. God has answered those prayers, opening countless doors for effectual ministry around the world. When we began praying for the Open Door Project, little did we know how God was going to work as only He can in Southeast Asia. Now the door has swung wide open. We need to act. In 2013, God opened the door to distribute Bibles in every primary and secondary school in the island nation of Fiji. Over 200,000 young people received a copy of God's Word. Most of those Bibles were given during school assemblies in which the gospel was clearly presented. One headmaster told his students, young people, they have given you the best gift in the world. Another told his students of his school, this is a holy book and you need to read it. Open your mind and see what God has for you. Only God ultimately knows the spiritual and practical impact these Bibles will have on the lives of these students and their families. Now God has marvelously opened the door for a major Bible initiative in Papua New Guinea. This initiative was created by the national leaders who declared, please help us put God and the Bible in our schools. And this is something that's going to change their life. We try to give them the living word of God so they can have the word of God in their hands and read from their, for their self, themselves and the power of God changing their lives. In May 2016, a BIMI team traveled to PNG at the invitation of national Christian leaders to meet with the Minister of Education and the leadership of the entire national school system. It appeared that God was once again opening a door of ministry. These government leaders had already learned that BIMI had provided Bibles for every student in all the schools in Fiji. And God had been working behind the scenes to prepare the way for this meeting. God had already placed a committed Christian in a key leadership role in the Department of Education who was burdened to see God's word distributed throughout the country. He stated that this is God's project and God will ensure we all make this project a reality. God was also working in the hearts of other national leaders. The Speaker of the National Parliament had commissioned the acquisition of a first edition King James Bible and proclaimed that this Bible was now the official Bible 
a PNG. There was a special ceremony placing the Bible as a centerpiece in the House of Parliament. Prime Minister, we need moral values more than anything else in this nation. And you will find that the Bible is the only source that contains those values more than any other faith document. Yet another example of God's hand in preparing the way was the decision reached by the Department of Education regarding how to address moral and discipline problems in the schools. After long hours of discussion, the conclusion was that they needed to get the Bible and Christian values firmly into the lives of all school students. We sat in awe of God's grace as we met with the government and national Christian leaders. What an amazing open door to impact an entire country. The Ministry of Education begged us to distribute Bibles and to share in school assemblies why the Bible is such a special book. How could we not say yes? Now we must act on that yes. To place a Bible into the hands of over 2 million students will be a massive undertaking, but God is a God of miracles. BIMI national workers and missionaries are prepared to be Jesus' hands and feet on the ground in Papua New Guinea. Carolyn and I have been serving in Papua New Guinea since 1988. We're really concerned about the young people of Papua New Guinea because so many of the population of the country are young people. And so this opportunity of putting Bibles in these high schools is a tremendous opportunity. It will have an impact upon the country as a whole. Brother Cromie is here this morning and he pastors here in Wisconsin he was in the first team to begin the Bible distribution and when they went in those schools they had a letter saying we have the authority to actually call a school-wide assembly so we can preach it and the principal said you don't need to give me a letter for that I'm telling you to do it and they preached the gospel they discovered that in their school is the plan to on a daily basis or weekly basis every week to have a one-hour Bible class with the students, except there's no one to come and lead the Bible class. So that day they made the arrangement, and when they showed up for the first time, there were 400 students voluntarily had come to the Bible class. The principal begged this man, I will pay you to come and teach my students. You don't even have to raise support. Retire here. Our government will pay you to teach our students the Bible. That's the open door. Did you know about that open door? To date, there are, they have distributed uh, 450,000 Bibles in 344 secondary schools in the last two years. That's $2.3 million that have been raised in the printing of these Bibles. And they also want them distributed in over 16 universities and colleges. I asked the um, my official brother Al Brooks, by the way, was, uh, he attended Maranatha back in Cedar Home days, um, 1973 to 75. Um, and uh, I asked him, um, you know, tell me about your team there. He said, we used to have seven BIMI missionary families in Papua New Guinea. He said, now we have one. They did have an assembly in which 800 national Baptist pastors gathered or, 
or fundamental pastors gathered. And so there is an amazing groundwork that's been laid. But leadership is needed and trained. Every day in Mexico, since the early 1980s, God has been doing something very special across Mexico. A number of significant ministries are focused on gospel proclamation and church multiplication. One has over 80 church plants. Catch this, more missionaries are being sent from Mexico than being sent to Mexico. The largest church in Mexico City, which is the 12th largest city in the world, about 21 million, is running 12,000 on Sunday morning, seeing souls baptized in every service. Their baptistry is so large, it's multiple person at a time baptistry. Often 300 will be uh, baptized on a Sunday. Their Bible college had the young people going out, soul winning on a daily basis. On a special day, they saw 3,000 baptized on one day. Every weekday, this, this church has a secular radio station, on a secular radio station, broadcasts a 30-minute gospel uh, witness to nearly 1 million listeners. That's Mexico. So I want to ask you again, can the Great Commission be completed in our generation? Can the Great Commission be completed in our generation? Men of God believed for Great Commission completion in past generations. Men of God believed for Great Commission completion in past generations. In 1792, William Carey thought we were still responsible for the Great Commission. He wrote in his inquiry, Our Lord Jesus Christ, a little before his departure, commissioned his apostles to go and teach all nations. Or as another evangelist expressed it, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This commission was as extensive as possible, laid under them obligation to disperse themselves into every country of the habitable globe and preach to all the inhabitants without exception or limitation. Boy, wasn't it a great day to put that vision out in front of people. I bet they were just ready to hear that. I bet they were ready to receive it. Folks, Kerry wasn't writing just a few days after Pentecost. He wasn't writing in the generation following the apostles. Kerry was writing after the tragedy of the Dark Ages. He was writing to, surrounded by an orthodoxy of unbelief. People who thought they were right when they were wrong about the Great Commission. We may think when Kerry lived in a great age to get excited about the Great Commission, but it wasn't that, it was just the opposite. But God used him in a mighty way. He said, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong, but amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God, and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all, yet my faith fixed on the sure word would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial, God's cause will triumph. And this man had the privilege baptizing Adoniram Judson and William Pettigrew and God used him exceeding abundantly above. He said to know the will of God we need an open Bible and an open map. In 1806 Samuel Mills thought we could do the Great Commission. Now catch this out. 1806. What time frame is 1806 compared to William Carey's inquiry? What's the time frame there? Do some quick math someone. What is it? 14 years, right? Okay, so 14 years after William Carey publishes his inquiry, his document has made waves all the way across the Atlantic. And here in this school, Williams College in Massachusetts, 
five students are meditating on the challenge of his inquiry. So Samuel Mills, four other men, we have their names, and they called William Carey's writing controversial. Controversial because it laid on all believers the weight and responsibility for world missions. And as they did, they were arguing deep in this the stories told of the storm rolled in and they fled for cover underneath a haystack and they're arguing. Should we go to China? One of them said, we can't. We have to wait till it becomes civilized. It's like governments have to get there before God's people do. And Samuel suggested they pray about it. And they all prayed, and except for the one who was a little difficult case, Loomis. Well, Mills remembered the objection and he said, oh God, strike down with our, the the arm with red artillery of heaven, anything that should be raised against a herald of the cross. And after singing his hymn, Mills looked at the others and over the roar of the drenching rain and with flashes of lightning reflecting his eyes cried out, we can do this if we will. Something broke loose in that moment within the hearts of all five. They pointed back to that moment as the one that changed them forever. What was it that broke loose? It's called faith. We can do this if we will. The first ever mission agency was soon created. The American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, Adoniram Judson, was among the, f- the first five that went out to Calcutta. Mills went on to inspire the creation of several other mission agencies, the United and so forth. A stack prayer movement became known all over the surrounding area, especially among college students. Samuel began a prayer movement called the Society of Brethren, giving themselves to the extension of the gospel around the world. Zinzendorf said, I have but one passion, it's he and he alone. The world is the field and the field is the world and henceforth that country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. In 1881, A.T. Pearson believed we could complete the Great Commission. Here he was convinced that the world could be evangelized by the end of the 20th century and he's at Northfield Bible Conference alongside a D.L. Moody and he addresses a thousand people and he stands up with this vision And he says, if 10 million out of the 400 million nominal Christians would undertake systematic labor, that each one should, in the course of the next 15 years, reach 100 other souls, the whole present population of the globe would have heard the good tidings by the year 1900. And he just put a little bit of a a numerical framework on the possibility. And as he did, D.L. Moody leaped to his feet jumped to the pulpit, cut off A.T. Pearson, and said, how many of you believe this can be done? Don't you love D.L. Moody? The crowd wore its approval. Moody, a practical man, appointed a committee, six men, he himself part of it, and they hammered out a document called An Appeal to Disciples Everywhere, and that was um, began to be distributed. The following year, A.T. Pearson put together a book called Crisis and Missions. You can still get it printed through Google Books or whatever. I have a copy. And in it, he rehearses what God's doing in our world. At the end of that document, of that book, is this document. And it called, um, um, it, 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 it called for this vision. In 1888, the largest world missionary conference ever held up to that time occurred in London, where the whole world was the picture. Although for various reasons, Pearson's goal for the year 1900 was not fully reached, the largest single surge forward to the ends of the earth did, in fact, take place in the years following this remarkable heavenly vision. A.D. Pearson later on assessed why they did not complete it. 
And it was a sad day for him, compelled to give up hope. As he evaluated, he identified two primary areas of neglect. First, he said the corporate church didn't cooperate fully in the task. They talked about it, preached about it, but never sat down and planned it practically how to get it done. Um, And then they did not mobilize enough prayer. In 1885, the Cambridge Seven surrendered everything for Great Commission. These men were the, the top of their uh, of their the popular uh, standing of their society, they were the many of them cricket players. It was somewhat when they surrendered, it was like the L.A. Laker teams being decimated by half their players joining Operation Mobilization. Yeah, that would be good. Well, J.E.K. Studd, C.D. Studd's older brother, came across the Atlantic at Moody's invitation. He toured those college campuses, and he's actually one of the writers uh, in that document or one of the studs was, the student volunteer movement for foreign missions was the result, building without any doubt on home influences of the women's missionary movement, the church-based young people's movement called Christian Endeavor, which had a strong missionary emphasis built into every local group. Isabel Kuhn said, I believe that in every generation God has called enough men and women to evangelize all the yet unreached tribes of the earth. It's not God who doesn't call, it's man who will not respond. In 1906, James Fraser recognized that we must complete the Great Commission. He was an engineer student, a godly young man, but he was just on a normal pathway of life. And he came across a booklet, and this was the booklet. A command has been given, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's not been obeyed. More than half the people in the world have never yet heard the gospel. In our day, we could say more than a third. What are we to say to this? Surely it concerns us Christians very seriously. We're the people who are responsible. No one else is. The angels aren't. The unconverted aren't. They have a much to answer for, but not the neglect of the heathen. The charge has been trusted exclusively to us. What can we say if our master returns today and finds that after 19 centuries, more than half the world's utterly unevangelized. The gospel to every creature, that's a plain command. Millions have never heard it. That's a simple fact. What are we going to say? If our master returned today to find millions of people unevangelized, looked at, his, looked at us, if he would, for an explanation, I can't imagine what we'd say. Of one thing I'm certain, most of our excuses we're accustomed to make with such good conscience now, would be holy, we'd be wholly ashamed of them. Robert Spear says there's nothing in the church or the world except the church's disobedience to render the evangelization of the world in this generation an impossibility. C.T. Studd gave his all for the whole unevangelized world. In 1910, he sails as a just older, just past 50-year-old down to the Congo of, South, of, of Africa. He's 50 years old. He has such a severe asthmatic condition that it literally threatens to asphyxiate him and kill him. His wife says, you can't go. His doctor says, you can't go. But he says, I must go. God's calling me. So he sets sail basically alone. He comes through the port there of Alexandria, Egypt. He comes down into the Sudan and discovers the gospel's already there. Maybe not everywhere, but it's there. So he continues down to the Congo. And for the next 20 years of his life, God supernaturally sustains him as he gives his all. And as he's on his way down, he has a moment in his cabin where God meets him. He says, as I left Liverpool, this is just on his way into Africa, on retiring to my cabin the first night, God spoke to me in a strange way. He said, this trip is not merely for the Sudan. It's for the whole unevangelized world. To human reason, this thing is ridiculous, but faith in Jesus laughs at impossibilities. There seemed absolutely no connection between this man's going to a corner of the Sudan and the whole unevangelized world. 
But now, as we look back over 20 years, we see that, this was what he started, the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade, which was the outcome of his going, is already planted in the hearts of three continents, Africa, Asia, and South America, besides Arabia and West Africa. Can we not again learn the lesson of what God is waiting to do by the man who will utterly believe him and obey him? He writes, My soul is on fire to do the work of Christ. I seem to hear Jesus saying, Go over and possess the good land of the world. Every place your foot shall tread upon. And thank God I have large ones, he wrote. To you I have given it. And today, there's a book called Operation World. Operation World is a prayer volume to give you details of how to pray for the nations. It's the most amazing and extensive. This would make William Carey faint and drool over. Because William Carey did the first world survey for the purpose of world evangelization. This is the modern one. And guess who prints it? Worldwide Evangelization Crusade started by C.T. Studd. And God was right when God gave C.T. Studd that vision. Reese Howells heard the Spirit's voice say, Every creature. In the early mornings of autumn 1934, Reese Howells was spending many hours alone with God. The Lord asked him if he believed the Savior meant his last command to be obeyed. I do, he replied. Well, then, do you believe I can give the gospel to every creature? He answered, I believe you can. You're God. I'm dwelling in you, the Lord said. Can I be responsible for you? For this through you? For years, Mr. Howells had been praying for the gospel to go to the world. He had not let a day pass without praying that the Savior should have the heathen for his inheritance and the uttermost parts of earth for his possession. He'd been struck by Andrew Murray's comments in Matthew 9 that the number of missionaries on the field depends entirely on the extent to which someone obeys that command and prays out the labors. But this new word from God was to lay direct responsibility on him. It was no mere assent to the general command to preach the gospel to every creature. It meant he would be a bondservant to this one task, to intercede, to go, to serve others who would go, to be responsible for seeing that every creature hears the gospel. Do you get the difference between assenting to the Great Commission and believing for it? Reese Howes came out from his room, a man with a vision and a burden which never left him. He called it the every creature vision. He brought it before his staff and students in the New Year's Day of 1935, given to prayer and fasting. The presence of God was felt in a real way. A deep and growing conviction took possession of many that God was going to do a new thing. It was a conviction that as really as the Savior came down to the world to make atonement for every creature, the Holy Ghost had come down to make atonement known to every creature. And he would complete it in their generation. In a new sense, the world began to be their parish. They began to be open for God to lay any prayer on them. Um, and they became responsible to intercede for countries and nations as well as individual missionaries and societies. The college became a house of prayer for all nations. And you read the book Intercessor and you're amazed at how God worked. A.B. Simpson said the Christian is not obedient unless he's doing all in his power to send the gospel to the heathen in the world. In 1953, Jack McAllister accepted God's plan for every home on earth. He was with a friend in Tokyo asking God, what's the Great Commission mean for Japan? It was clear prayer was essential. God gave him a vision. He was a 25-year-old young visionary. He flew home, convinced prayer was the key, and through a radio broadcast he had, he began to mobilize people to take quarter hours to arrange an, an unbroken hour-by-hour, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week prayer chain. 
In answer to prayer, God gave a strategy to systematically place gospel literature in the door of every home in the world. To this day, this ministry, which is called Every Home for Christ, now in our day, to this day, some 60 years later, catch this, over 2.9 billion gospel pamphlets have been distributed to over 1.3 billion homes in 204 nations. 101 nations have been completely covered at least once. Over 16,000 workers distribute gospel literature door-to-door every month, 90% volunteer. 93 million decisions have been recorded. Tens of thousands of churches have been planted. The work is not yet done. If the Great Commission is true, Pat Morley said, our plans are not too big, they're too small. Ralph Winter in 1986 began to believe for the final era of world missions, the completion He said the final era of missions is before us. For the first time in history, it's possible to see the end of the tunnel where there will be a church movement within the language and social structure of every people group on earth. Powerful face-to-face evangelism taking over in all peoples. God is moving through his global body to fulfill his promise to the nations in ways we could not possibly have imagined 20 years ago. And he denoted something I'd like to mention to you here at this point. He denoted that there's been several eras in the strategy of world missions. The first era began in 1792 with William Carey. We would call that the coastlands era. When those missionaries went out, where did they begin their work? On the coastal cities. But if you remember, back when Hudson, then a few years later in 1865, as Hudson Taylor is beginning his work, he called it the China Inland Mission. There were missions like African Inland Mission, Sudan Interior Mission, the regions beyond Missionary Union. And so no longer being content on the large metroplexes that would normally be on the coastland, they said, who's out there who's never heard? And they went inland, which was a huge step of faith. That was the inland era. Then we come to the unreached people's era. About 1934, someone who kind of typifies this is Cameron Townsend, as he thought about those unreached peoples and the languages they needed the Bible. And so you have, these now are the hidden peoples, the smaller grouping segments that are outside of the dominant language groups. Now you have things like New Tribes Mission or Mission Aviation Fellowship that are designed to get into these unreached regions. There was an 82,000 movement that had a desire for a church for every people by the year 2000. So the unreached era, the coastlands era, the inlands era, the unreached era. And some has commented uh, now that maybe we have, can think in terms of a fourth era. And I think there's validity to it. And we could call this the partnership era. With the ease of transportation and with the ease of communication and technology, the partnership era recognizes this fact. I was just in Manipur. And the partnership era is this. The best people to reach the unreached people yet in Manipur are the people who are believers in Manipur. In other words, partnership is more possible and efficient than ever. Douglas Combs of Biblical Ministries Worldwide has a training ministry. He's a fundamental uh, Baptist, and he's calling, he calls it Advance, Inspiring National Churches. And this is his goal, a strategic Great Commission vision of training national churches around around the world to train and send their own people and themselves take responsibility for the Great Commission. And this certainly is that fourth level of missionary breakthrough. It is a tragic thing 
when we somewhat tongue-in-cheek express doubt regarding indigenous national believers and their ability to carry forth the Great Commission. I want to say that if you have in your mindset more questions about what the indigenous person can be in multiplying church, you have a huge barrier in your mind to the work God's called you to. Listen, the raising up of church in the hands of nationals is the mission. It's why you're there as a missionary. And if you have a negative mindset about the possibility of what nationals can do with the word of God and being true to it, you have a serious problem. And we have mission boards that actually almost have that problem. And it's a big problem. In 2003, the Chinese house church believed for completion. They said our goal is nothing less than the completion of the Great Commission so that the Lord Jesus Christ will return for his bride to bring all of human history to the moment in scripture where the voices are proclaiming as in Revelation 11:15, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. This is our goal. This is our purpose. We're doing whatever it takes to fulfill this vision. We're concentrating on getting the job done in the power of the Lord. The evangelical Christianity in China has exploded. They're going through a difficult time, but God's going to use it for his good. They're good in his glory. I want to ask you this. Is this a controversial statement? We are under obligation to complete the Great Commission in our generation. Is this a controversial statement? We are under obligation to complete the Great Commission in our generation. Is that a controversial statement? Maybe it is. Maybe it is. In the 1830s, John Darby didn't think the Great Commission could be done. He's a well-known dispensational, or had some, some good thinking on dispensational ideas, but he had a major flaw. And listen to what he, what he wrote. He said, this dispensation, as well as any other, failed and broke off in the very outset. It broke down in the commencement, no sooner fully established than it proved a failure. Scripture never recognizes a recovery from such a state. It alters the whole position of the soul to recognize that we live in an apostasy hastening to its final consummation instead of a church or dispensation which God is sustaining by his faithfulness of grace. The church is in a state of ruin. I would say that such a conclusion would alter the whole state of the soul, wouldn't you? But I really believe that kind of thought is right in our midst that this is a general decline and our only hope is that Jesus would somehow rescue us out of a really miserable state the church has fallen into. That the world's become so strong, the satanic strongholds abound so much that the church can't be what it used to be and it can't accomplish what it could be and our only hope is to hang on until the end. And my friends, the reason we're here is to complete the Great Commission We're here to not die with the mission. We're here to live in the mission. 
In fact, if you really want to experience his presence, he said he's with someone always to the end of the age. Who's that? The one who's on mission? We say, just be faithful, brother. Don't expect too much. The book of Acts has long since passed away. I want to ask you this. How in the world are we calling ourselves faithful when we've given up on the mission? How in the world is that being faithful? How in the world are we obedient believers if we're disobedient to the Great Commission? We're deceived. Big time. Because if we believed it, we'd be making different plans. Like now. Our only hope is to give ourselves to the Great Commission like never before. And our only hope is the manifest presence of God. John R. Rice just laid it out there. He said thousands of track magazine articles, sermons, and radio messages tell the people Jesus is coming soon. These last days of this dispensation and similar phrases are so common. All these people, usually faithful Bible believers, earnest Christians, have been influenced and misled by a heresy that's become widespread. This mistaken teaching holds that we are now according to what, we're, what are regarded as definite signs in the very last few weeks or months or years before Jesus must come, that this period that called the last days is more difficult than ever. The defeatism of Christians who are not bold in preaching nor bold in prayer becomes because they believe that Christian work is less effective than ever before, that the gospel does not bring the results that it did before, and that great revivals are less likely than ever before is tragic indeed. This ultra-dispensational teaching that Jesus is certain to come soon, that certain signs prove the age is rushing to an early end, that the apostasy and world conditions and increased activity of Satan make gospel efforts less fruitful and revivals more difficult and unlikely is a distressing perversion. He says some Christians rationalize the situation and unconsciously evade the facts of their powerlessness and unbelief with this doctrine that we're in the last days. It's impossible to win souls in any great numbers. So all of the searching of the Bible and the searching of the daily newspapers to find some signs that prove Christ will come within a certain specified time is contrary to the spirit of the scriptures and does dishonor to the Lord Jesus Christ who left us here simply to get the gospel to every creature. I grieve when the pitfalls of missions are highlighted over the pathway of missions, when impossibilities get more airtime than possibilities, when there's more fear of nationals taking leadership than understanding that this is the essence of our missionary task, when the sense of we can't do this dominates the reality we can if we will. I'm going to end here. The Great Commission completion is is the record of New Testament days, We really spent some time on this in last year's conference, so just get that recording. Some lessons learned from the Great Commission pattern found in the book of Acts, and so unfortunately we won't have time to discuss this, but let me just give you these blanks here. Lessons learned from the Great Commission pattern found in the book of Acts. Missionaries must function in the apostolic pattern rather than the pastoral pattern. A missionary is not called to go pastor on foreign soil. 
Did you hear that? A missionary is called to go train pastors That's right. and nationals. And you can function one way that leaves you forever without such national leadership, or you can function a different way. And look at the book of Acts to get a hold of some of that. Do not plant a single church. Plant a cluster of churches. Do not plant a single church. Plant a cluster of churches. We're talking about Paul's example in Acts. Church leaders, uh, in other words, folks, if you're, if you're a missionary, don't just, by God's grace, ask you to show you the open door, but don't just stay at one place, have multiple places you're working, because people need to know, this man isn't going to pastor us. If we want a pastor, it's going to have to be one of us, and I'm here to train you. So don't plant a single church, plant a cluster of churches. Sec- thirdly, church leaders are not imported, they come out of the local harvest. They come out of the local harvest. The missionary maintains an itineracy. The missionary maintains an itineracy of bold witness and leadership training and teaching. New believers are baptized immediately and soon instructed and commissioned as disciple makers. Baptized, commissioned. They realize if we are to have a church, we must lead it, and the missionary will teach us how. Train and ordain lay leadership. Train and ordain lay leadership. Avoid the pitfall of paid leadership. Prayer and fasting is central to gospel advance and defeat of satanic strongholds. Prayer and fasting. Holy Spirit is the leader in everything. He leads to the lost who are ready. That's the prepared harvest, the persons of peace. And he leads to the laborers who are called, Acts 13, prayer meeting. James Stewart says, they believe with all their heart that Christ was the answer to the world's need. They believe they were, they were, they believe they were commissioned by the living Christ to spread this message to every creature. They live for this one thing alone. This conviction led them to a holy crusade, day and night, in season and out of season. They fearlessly and sacrificially crusaded in the enemy's territory with the message of the great evangel. This burning passage crowded all secular things out of their lives. Social prestige and money held no charms for them unless they could but be used for the spread of the message. They not only lived for Christ, but went to prison and died for him. What a contrast to ourselves. We say we believe the same as the early church, but our lives deny this fact. We have many ambitions and pursuits and pleasures which take first place in our heart's affections and our intellectual excuses. The gospel comes second. What a transformation would come to the church of God today if we really put first things first and dedicated all we possess to worldwide evangelization. So local churches must pray and plan and work towards Great Commission completion regionally and globally. Assume the Great Commission. Where has the gospel not yet gone? Where has the gospel not yet gone? This is our obedience and it is our work to go. I just want to mention this to you a number. Um, as we look out on our world and the unreached people groups of the world, the most recent assessment noted this, that one quarter of our world lives in frontier people groups. Frontier people groups are people groups that can be identified in which there is no national church movement. In fact, the existing believers are less than like 0.01%. These are the frontier people groups. That's a quarter of the world. As you look at the size of those groups, those groups, a quarter, 
31 of those groups are half of the frontier people groups. In other words, in 31 people groups exists one-eighth of the unreached peoples of the world, just 31 of them. And um, I, I, let me just see if I can just show a couple to you. The Tajik in Afghanistan, the Sheik in Bangladesh, the Hui in China, the Uyghur in China, um, the Jat in India, the Kapu in India, the Kumhar in India, the Kunbi in India, uh, the Teli, the Yadav, the Moroccan Arabic-speaking peoples in Morocco, the Muslim Iranian people in Pakistan, the Jat in Pakistan, the Pashtun in Pakistan, the Rajput in Pakistan, the Shaikh in Pakistan. Is there two countries that kind of stand out there? India and Pakistan. Assume open doors. Where is the need and receptivity the highest? A prepared harvest. This is the Spirit's work to convict and convince. William Pettigrew found that in Ukruel. Third, assume multiplication. Where are the same culture or near culture partners whom we can train and send? Indigenous movements. It's the new believers' work to multiply. I wanted to show you this. Some of you know of our work in Cameroon. And I just want to show you something I just got just yesterday morning, I believe it was. This I didn't actually. This looks like a really bad picture. It's actually not bad. These people are still living, but they're hiding from bullets. This is in Sabga right behind either Pastor Ernest or Pastor Felix's house. And when the bullets start flying, they flee to the woods and lay down just to avoid the flying bullets. So they have had to leave that region because of the conflict. And Pastor Felix, he and his wife Yvette, and their uh, three children are just across the border in Nigeria. And he gives me this report. He said, um, uh, he said we are seeing souls saved every day. In fact, here's a, here is a, uh, uh, here's a picture of a gathering on, uh, on a Sunday. In fact, this was actually before they got there. This was the group of believers just gathering themselves. Here is a small disciple-making group. Pastor Felix has just begun with the men. And here is a small disciple-making group with the ladies. And the work is going forward there. That's in Cameroon. I wanted to let you know that just this last December is an annual conference that annual conference is normally led by like Pastor Felix, Pastor Ernest, Glenn Swanson, and they'll put together, it's been going on for many years, and they'll train them for two or three days just between Christmas and New Year's. Well, this year, because of the conflict, no American could be in that region of the choir, and neither could be the near culture foreign leader like Pastor Ernest, Pastor Felix. They are not of a choir. So if they were going to have a meeting, guess who was going to have to lead it? The choir believers. And in December 27, 28, about 80 to 100 of them gathered together and they sent out word and pictures saying we had an amazing time. So how do we get, how do we go about it when we get there? We win the battle on our knees. We disseminate the gospel broadly. We teach ordinary disciples to multiply and we keep going to the next unreached village with and through the new national local churches a local church can complete the Great Commission. In 2019, here's a blank, and you're not going to find the answer on, your, on the screen. In 2019, put your own name in that blank. 
write your own name on that blank. Mark Gilmore. Write your name there. In 2019, I, or me, Mark, believes the Great Commission can or can't be done. Circle one. Your name can or can't. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle. That David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. What happens when kings neglect the battle? Really, 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 really good men fall prey to temptation. And the devices of the evil one. Why are so many of God's people fighting and losing the battle with the flesh? It's because they are preoccupied with the comfort zone rather than the battle zone of gospel advance. Why are so many churches losing the battle with encroaching worldliness? It's because their feet are no longer shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. They are failing to commission their people with the gospel gun. You see, our battles that we're fighting seem only to be defensive ones because we've forsaken the offensive one. And the offensive strategies and weapons of courageous, multiplying gospel advance into neighborhoods and municipalities in need of local churches. Where's the next lost soul that needs to hear? Where's the next disciple to be trained and commissioned? Where's the next town or village to be reached? This should be our passion. The reality of battle does not mean the inevitability of defeat. The reality of battle means the necessity for victory. It's a battle out there. It's supposed to be a battle out there. And we're supposed to win it. How often do you hear that? Well, it's a battle out there, brother. Okay, what do you mean by that? You're going to lose? Oh, watch it. Satan's going to be around the corner. Yeah, and if he is, he's already there. He's a roaring lion. We know that. So get him when, he turns, when you turn the corner. Numbers 32, 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. 
be sure your sin will find you out. And I want to ask you this. This message is preached. That passage is quoted for a whole lots of things. But I want to tell you it was written there for one thing. What is the sin that will find you out? What is the sin that will find you out? And here's what the sin is. The children of Gad and Reuben had chosen to settle on the east side of Jordan. We could call it the easy side of Jordan. The place where the battle had already been won. And they had chosen to settle there, but the west side remained to be taken and was the territory for ten other tribes that still didn't possess their land. And the sin that will find you out is remaining on the sidelines of battle when there remains more land to be taken. Shall your brethren go to war and shall you sit here? The choice to disengage the battle destroyed a generation at Kadesh Barnea and Moses wasn't going to let that happen again. And one generation passes on to the next and the church planning movement of Shubal Stern's day passes into the next generation and one generation is content to revel in a church planning movement of a bygone day and isn't strengthened to start a new one in their day. And we have a Bible belt that exists because someone took it to the devil and we're not willing to take it to our northeast or our northwest and believe God to do it again. And we sit back forever wrestling with our people because our vision isn't a great commission one. And I want to say this. Any vision short of complete obedience to gospel to every creature isn't Christ's vision for our world today. You say, I am so intimidated by such a statement. Well, that's why we've got the comforter and that's why we've got the manifest present conference. Because he will be with us. But I want to say this. When you believe for all of it, God's on track to do things you'll never be able to come up with. And to only be on track for part of it or only be on track barely for maybe none of it is to be, complete, is to be committing the sin that's going to find you out. And it may be your generation that spends 40 years in the wilderness. So as we look out upon our world, there's land to be taken. Would you agree with me? There's land to be taken. I'm telling you, I'm going to Papua New Guinea uh, next Tuesday, Lord willing. Did you catch what area of that country is wide open right now? What area of the country are they screaming for help in? Their what? Their youth, right? And the thing that got my attention just a couple of days ago, and I didn't realize it, I knew, I saw Papua New Guinea as this, this, this plethora of these valleys and mountains with people groups and languages that you have to commit to for a lifetime to actually engage, which we need. But, you know, and all of a sudden I realized English is a common factor across that entire nation. Now, I'm not saying the Bible should only be in King James English for all people I'm not, in that land, in that country. 
Um, but it is a recognized bridge. And I'm just thinking about the generation. And what that youth movement could do on Papua New Guinea. That's pretty exciting. They might pay the generation to come, sounds like. There are people in our world today who haven't heard and won't hear unless someone goes. And young person, adult person, pastor, it's your responsibility. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this isn't our mission, it's yours. And the one who's giving us this mission is sitting on a throne right now. And he holds into his hand an unalterable, unshakable, eternal triumph. And you have called us to live that triumph and proclaim that triumph to, before every creature on earth. Lord Jesus, would you do what's necessary to get us into that mission? Would you pour out upon us such a convincement of your presence and your power that we do go to the uttermost parts of the earth? I pray right now for these unreached people groups in India and Pakistan. Lord, there are spiritual strongholds that keep them there. And I ask you, the authority of the name of Jesus, to destroy the works of the devil. And I ask you to send labors into that region. I praise you for that you have won the victory for every person bound in Islam, for every person blinded by Hinduism. I praise you that you are the sole victor. You are the God, man, the second Adam, and you deserve to be known. So make yourself known in and through us, we pray, that the Great Commission would be our goal and the completion of it in our generation, we pray in Jesus' name.